Father, as we open up your word, I pray that we would have insight through the power of your Holy Spirit to see what we need to see. I pray and ask you, God, that you would give me strength in my weakness. We pray that Jesus would be glorified as we open your word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, 2 Kings chapter 10. 2 Kings chapter 10. We are moving through a lot of narrative, and it's one of the hard calls to make is, is really to know the, the speed or the pace in which to, to navigate. Um, this morning, the title of the message is a call to wholehearted devotion. A call to wholehearted devotion. I'm not sure if that is uh, showing up here. I want to look. It's not showing up. The, uh, just double checking. So when we look at this this morning, we're going to trace again. We're going to see the unfolding of, of different kings. So, Joey, I'm going to ask if you could help me with the uh, slides here. Um, and, and what we're going to do is, as we look at this call, we're going to see it unfold through the life of, again, several different kings and several different events that take place in this tumultuous time in the life of Israel. We're going to look this morning at five baselines again, just to try to get some handles as to how we're going to see what's unfolding. So we're going to seek to move through the narrative. And as we seek to move through the narrative, we're going to come back and look at two key lessons in all of this. But we begin where we left off last time. Last time we finished off with King Jehu. Jehu was a king that was reigning in Israel, and he was the avenger. He was a man that God raised up to take vengeance upon evil. And the first baseline that we look at here is a summary of Jehu's reign in chapter 10, verses 28 through verse 36. Let's read a little bit here in chapter 10, verse 28. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. We see that although he did a lot of good, one of the clarifications on King Jehu is that he was not wholly committed to God. And when I speak of wholly committed, I'm speaking of W-H-O, like not H-O, holy, like his entire heart was not dedicated unto God. And we see that there in verse 29. As we move into verse 30, but God said that he did well. In verse 30, in this regard, and the Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And then verse 31, sort of a repeat from 29, but Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. It's sad to see here because even when you see what looks like to be positive examples 
you see some negative pop up immediately. He didn't turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. It's sobering to think about. Um, are you an influence for others to sin? Are you more of an influence to godliness? Are you more of an influence to wickedness? You think about that in the areas of and arenas of influence in your life. Like, do you influence your buddies more into things of God, or do you influence your buddies more into things of the world? Do you influence your children more into things of the world? Or is their presence around you influenced more into godliness? So when you look at these kings, so often you're looking at kings that either influence the people into righteousness or their influence was in a negative way. Their influence was under wickedness. And, and that's what you see here. You see this, while he did well as an avenger in what he was called to do, we see those problems. In verse 32, in those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Haziel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. It's interesting, because God in his wisdom, in his discipline, cut off parts of of Israel through a pagan Syrian king. This is the same guy that Elisha wept over. Remember when he was staring at him and it got awkward between the two of them as he was staring at his face, and then he reveals to the fact that Haziel was actually going to become a ruler and he was going to inflict pain upon the people of Israel, and Haziel took joy in that? He was thinking that was the best thing he had ever heard, and yet Elisha understood the, the tragedy in it. And now God is using, how does that work? God's using a wicked leader to accomplish his purposes. That's the sovereignty of God. God works in mysterious ways. And yet what we always find out is while God will use the wicked to accomplish his purpose, the wicked is always culpable and always responsible, and always will be judged. God is not mocked. So God is fulfilling the very promises that he gave Israel in Deuteronomy 28 when he gave them the blessings and the cursings of the law. And even in their sin and even in their disobedience, what, is we, what are we seeing in the background? God is faithful to leave a lamp in Jerusalem. What does that mean? God is faithful to keep the promise that he made to Abram. Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. God is faithful to keep the Davidic covenant. You say, why is that important? Because that promise in Genesis 12 and that promise in 2 Samuel 7 sets the runway, so to speak, for Messiah. Jesus comes through the line of Abraham. He is the one through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the greater son of David who will rule and reign forever. And so in all of this, you see not only God fulfilling his word of judgment and discipline upon his people, but you see this light of hope, this lamp of hope in the background, the hope that has ultimately become our only hope. So we see that, that how it's diminished, verse 33, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the Manasites from Aurora, which is by the valley of the Ammon, that is Gilead and Bashan. So we see all of this. And then we get into verse 34 through verse 36, and we see the summary of Jehu's life. His life has come 
to an end. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? He reigned 28 years, second baseline. Not only do we see the summary of Jehu's life, we see another lady, again, related now to Jezebel, her mom's Jezebel, and Athaliah seizes power. And boy, does she seize power. I tell you, uh, we don't need another Jezebel, but here we go. This lady thinks that she can fulfill it. We get into chapter 11. She's going to become king in Judah. Athaliah. Athaliah, verse 1. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. Unbelievable. We're going to get more into this in a minute as we go through this. I want you to see the basic ideas and the, and the, and the markers, the baselines. But what we've got is we've got a summary of Jehu's life at the end of chapter 10. We jump into chapter 11, and we see an amazing plot. We see this woman who's seizing power, Athaliah. And Athaliah is trying to kill any threat to the throne. And what it does, it puts a great, great burden upon the amount of people eligible to be a descendant in the line of Judah. Major problems going on. Athaliah is a ruthless woman, and the only way that this future king is protected is by this woman. And who is this lady? Jehoshaphat. Baseline number three, God raises up two different names with J's. There's a lot of J's going on, isn't there? If you're confused, join the party. You've got to get a piece of paper, and you've got to write out. You've got to work at this. I mean, you, you really do. It's not just something that comes easy because you've got to really try to get inside what's happening in the line of what the author is giving us. But there's two J's here that God's grace raises up, and you've got to be familiar with them. We see the end of Jehu. We see Athaliah sees power. But now two people God uniquely raises up that are grace upon the people. And the first one is Jehoshaphat. She's the daughter of King Joram, the sister of Ahaziah. And she took Joash. She knows Joash is a part of the line. She realizes the descendants are dwindling. And she says, nuh-uh, I'm going to take this little boy and I'm going to protect him. I'm going to put him in a bedroom in the house of the Lord, and I'm going to protect him from the foreigner, King Athaliah. <laughs> Athaliah would be a foreigner in this sense. And so Athaliah wouldn't have any place in the house of the Lord. And so what Jehoshaphat is doing is that she is protecting this rightful king, 
protecting his life. But then we see another individual, the priest, verse 4. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and of the guards and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son. Now, Jehoiada, you've got the protector. You've got the lady protector. You've got the priest who basically now understands the significance of what is going on. And what he's going to do, he's going to protect this future king. And he sets up provision. He sets up protection. And he makes them covenant with him. And he puts them under oath that they will be protectors. Look at verse 5. And he commanded them, this is the thing that you shall do, one-third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house. Another third being at the gate, sir, and a third at the gate behind the guard shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you which come on duty and force on the Sabbath and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. He divides them up into thirds based on who's on shift on the Sabbath, who's coming off shift on the Sabbath. And basically, each of the thirds is going to play a critical role of protection for this young boy, a young boy who's going to become king at seven years old. That's amazing. I've had seven-year-olds in our house think they were king. And this one actually was. He was the king. And and here's what we're going to see. I I tell you, I don't want to jump into it yet, but trust me, we're coming back because this is a critical, critical story in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, and one that you may never have considered, but we're going to jump back in here in a second. So, so far, we see three baselines. We got the end of the life of Jehu, wraps up at the end of chapter 10. We jump into chapter 11, and we see this ruthless woman who seizes power, Athaliah. But then we see these other two people, one a lady, one a priest, and they become a grace to Israel of God's goodness. Baseline four, the death of Athaliah. What happens is from verse four down into verse 10, you see the story of how this young boy becomes the king. You look at verse 8. She'll surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand, and whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. Serious, serious times in Judah. The rightful line of the king. Imagine, people are being killed off. They're taking out every eligible descendant who could be a rightful king in the line of Judah. And that's a big deal. I don't know if you remember, but Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. But now you tell me that they're being killed off like crazy? And that all of these descendants that could be the very one to continue the line of Judah are dwindling. And now it's now up to one little boy, a one-year-old boy who's now been hid in the temple. 
and there's a ruthless lady who's out to kill him because she's so over, has a desire for, for power. She's lust for power, and she wants to kill anybody that would be a threat. And what is Jehoiada do? He says, look, we're going to guard this little kid, and we're going to guard his life. And if anybody comes in here looking for anything, I want you to take them out. So what happens? Verse 9, the captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and they each brought his men who were off to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and the shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. Verse 11, and the guard stood every man with his weapons in his hand from the south side of the house to the north side of the house around the altar and the house on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son. Now, this is amazing. Verse 12, this, this seven-year-old kid, imagine it. Will's eight. So Will last year, right? They bring him out. Can you imagine like Will walking up? And look what verse 12. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. Do you think Athaliah liked it? Not on your life. Look at verse 13. When Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she went into the house of the Lord of the people. Uh Uh-oh, mistake number one, mistake number two. You already made a lot of mistakes. Maybe this is mistake number 37. She goes into the house of the Lord, verse 14, and when she looked, there was the king. And immediately she realizes what's going on. Wait a minute. By the pillar, according to the custom, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets, and Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, treason, treason. Verse 15, then Jehoiada, the priest, commanded the captains who were set over the army, bring her out between the ranks and put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. Verse 16, so they laid hands on her. She went through the horse's entrance to the king's house, and there she was put to death. And look at the influence of this priest upon the land. We see this this gracious woman raised up by God to protect the king, and we see this priest. And look at verse 17 through 19. We're going to come back to it also. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. Verse 18, then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images, they broke in pieces and they killed Matt and the priest of Baal before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord. And he took the captains, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land. And they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house. And he took his seat on the throne of kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced. And the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. And there it is, verse 21, Jehoash. Now remember, there's names. It's like, I'm, my name's Steve. I also go by Stephen. Joash also goes by Jehoash. 
just the way it is. <laughs> it's hard to understand because we're not, we're not used to these names, but that's the name. That's the same name. Jehoash was seven years old when he began to reign. Baseline number five, the reign of this king, Joash or Jehoash, and you see his reign in chapter 12, verse 1 through 21. He begins to reign. And, and verse 2 is interesting. Everything seems to be having a great trajectory. It says, he did right in the sight of the Lord all his days. If you stop there, you stop too quick. What's the qualifier? He did right in the sight of the Lord all his days in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. We'll come back to that. And what did that look like at the beginning? It looked well. The problem, verse 3, though, is the high places were not taken away. It sort of gives us a, a, like a little bit of an insight into what's coming. The people continue to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. I tell you, the state of the human heart, the state of the human heart, apart from the grace of God, is simply externally religious. Apart from God's power to change the heart, mankind will simply go back and forth all the time. What do we need? I hope you see this. Because what it does is it starts to chip away at the thought of self-righteousness. We live in a society, I'm not picking on Scottsboro, it's true of anywhere. So if I was in Chattanooga, I'd say we live in a place, Atlanta would be the same way, no matter where you go, Portland, Oregon, you can go to Southeast Asia, and the default mentality of humanity is that we can earn our way to God. And how do we do that? What's the natural inclination of the heart of man to think that we can be Good enough. Every religious system in the world, have you ever thought about this? Every religious system in the world, with the exception of Christianity, is basically a system of how mankind merits their way to be accepted by God. Well, the Bible says that just can't be because it gives us the theology of the heart of man. The heart of man is deceptively wicked. It's, it's depraved. And so mankind, according to the scripture, is left in this predicament in which they can't save themselves. And so when we look at Israel, we're looking at a synopsis of our own heart. This is who we are. When things look good, they turn bad quickly. We go from this to this. We go from this to this. We show that our hearts are not fully going towards God because we have depraved hearts. They're sinful hearts. We have hearts of enmity before God. That, that's problematic because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So here's what I want you to see. This whole idea of God allowing a lamp to remain in Jerusalem is the lamp of hope for the entire world. It's the lamp of Messiah. And why is that so significant? Because God is sending his son to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We needed someone to keep the law perfectly. What did Christ do when he came? He fulfilled the law perfectly. And he was the only one eligible to be a substitute for sinners. 
Why? We needed a human and a divine representative. We needed one like us, but he couldn't really be like us because we're sinners. So we needed one like us, but that was not like us. We needed the God-man. And the God-man comes to take our place. Looking at the wickedness of Israel is an opportunity to see our need of a Savior. It's an opportunity for us to see the foolishness of works-based systems of salvation. This is what's happening. But what happens in verse 3, he doesn't take down the high places, but he begins to repair the temple. You read verse 4 all the way down into really near the end of the chapter, and it's the story of how he utilizes a plan of the gifts that were given to the Lord in the temple and how these gifts and these, this monetary gift, these monetary gifts could be used to repair the house of God. So that's where we end in chapter 12. So what are the two lessons this morning as we look at these five baselines? There's a lot of lessons. Uh, one of the hardest challenges of going through this series is really pulling from each section what the heart of the section really is. But the two lessons, number one, God faithfully works out his plans in real time. I want us to go back and I want us to really hone in on 2 Kings 11, 1 through 3. I want us to really get a better sense of what's taking place. I mentioned a little bit. I want to read you this paragraph uh, I got out of a, a resource, and I, it helped me understand the summary of it. So I'm going to read it to you, hoping that this will help you to grasp a little bit more of what's happening in chapter 11. Ahaziah's power-hungry mother, Athaliah, smelled an opportunity. She rounded up all of her son's family, anyone with the potential claim to the throne and had them all killed so she could become the queen. She missed only one in the slaughter when Ahaziah's sister Jehoshabeth, Jehoiada's wife, realized what Athaliah was up to. She hid the youngest of her nephews, Joash, away, just a year old. Joash was too young to claim his rightful throne, but he was protected by Jehoiada and Jehoshabeth in the temple of the Lord. Another fascinating part of this that we learn about if we're reading the Companion Chronicles. We learn some information in Chronicles. The chronicler, Merida, Dr. Merida says, the chronicler tells us that King Jehoram and who's King Jehoram? King Jehoram comes before Ahaziah and, and, and before Joash. So to give you a little background, the chronicler tells us that King Jehoram had all his brothers killed. Then the, in 2 Chronicles 21, 1 through 4, then the Philistines and the Arabians invaded Judah and carried off and killed all Jehoram's sons except for Ahaziah and Jehoahaz. Ahaziah gets caught up in Jehu's purge. Remember, he's killed. And is killed after a one-year reign along with 42 relatives. The Davidic line has been severely decimated. 
Now in chapter 11, we meet a new Jezebel, Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab, grandmother of Joash, who ruled for six years. The line of David. Now, wait a minute. Do you realize? I heard years ago a story that I I, I loved. I was listening to... uh, my dad and mom would always listen to a moody radio in Chattanooga. I remember uh, there was a preacher on at 8.30, and we had to be at our school at 8.30. And I was always in the middle of the guy's outline by the time we got to school because my sister took too long to get ready. So I would always hear this guy preach. And uh, it was a bad sign when I heard him preach at all because I was already late. But if I, if I knew half of his message, I was really late. Uh, but, but one time on that station, I was in the back seat and I was listening to, I think at the time, Tony Evans, they played him on 88.9. Dr. Evans was telling a story about a painting of a chess game in this art gallery called The Chess Players. And it depicted on one side of the chessboard the devil, and on the other side of the chessboard, It depicted a shaking, frightened young man, the devil playing chess with this young lad. And in the painting, the way it was seeking to depict this image, this scene um, of the devil putting the young man in checkmate. Well, one day the story goes, a chess champion from another country visited the gallery Evan says, the painting naturally caught his attention, caused him to examine it for a very long time. In fact, while others had moved on throughout the gallery, the chess champion remained fixated on the game and the devil who was about to make the next move to steal this man's soul in the painting. Hours passed as the chess champion continued to study the board from every possible angle. The sweat on the young man's face begged him to continue Finally, as the gallery was about to close for the night, people in every part of this enormous building heard a loud scream as the chess champion yelled, Yes, I've got it. You don't have to lose. The chess champion discovered another move on the board for the young lad. When you think about this story, you have to remember, why is it so significant that the line of David is in jeopardy of coming to ruin? Why is it such a significant deal? Because Messiah comes through the Davidic line. So now you, in essence, have a seven-year-old boy that is the last hope for Messiah on the earth, the last Line, the last eligible person that could extend and continue the Davidic line. But I want you to be comforted by something. As we look at this story, we're reminded of some truths in the Bible. One of them, Job says, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We saw a little bit of this when we looked at the life of the Shunammite woman. We saw the sovereign hand of God working itself out in real time in providence. And yet we see here that even though people are fully responsible and they act and they make decisions in real time, that God is fully sovereign and God's purposes will never be derailed. 
Another one that is so significant, the promise that was given in the garden of Eden. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what's the promise there? That Eve would have a descendant that ultimately would give a fatal blow to Satan. And now it's in jeopardy. Now it's in jeopardy. This crazy woman in the line of Ahab is out to destroy any person that represents a challenge to her perceived ruling. And yet what do we see? The promise in Genesis later on, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here we have it. Everything seems in jeopardy. But what does God do? God works. His plans will be fulfilled. God is not mocked by the wickedness of people. Even as men are responsible and act wickedly, God is sovereign and reigns and he rules. I I love this. There's so many ways you could go with this. You see that we've been looking at the promises of God. You can take them to the bank. We can believe the promises of God. Every time we see that phrase, according to the word of the Lord, it always comes true. And here we're reminded that the promises that God gave to Abraham, the, the promise that God gave in the garden, the promise God gave to David, the promises that he gave of Messiah would not be unfulfilled. God was not mocked. What looked like Satan, you know, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Throughout history, Satan has sought to derail the plan of God. And just when it looked like Satan had things in checkmate, God raised up two people to serve his purposes. I pray that brings us comfort. In real time, That's significant because Christ is the hope of the world. I pray he's the hope of your life. He's the only one that can bring you forgiveness. He's the only one that can bring redemption to your heart. But but I want you to think of some other things. This is even bigger than, or or in more practical ways, beyond even the hope of the world. We can keep going. It extends beyond that is what I meant to say. Evil people will not frustrate God's purposes. Uh, you know, think about it. In your life, in the world, do you believe it? In your life, in the world, in the life of your kids, even through decisions people make, have you ever been frustrated at a decision somebody made that kept you from a promotion? Have you ever been frustrated about a decision someone made maybe going back to when you were in high school and you wanted to get into a school? Or maybe there was some job you were looking for out of college and somebody made a decision that affected you. Let me ask you a question. Can you trust God with your life even when wicked people make decisions that hurt you? This is an interactive part of the sermon. What do you think? Yes. But let me ask you something. Do we often act like that's not true? How many people do you know that live their life bitter, because somebody wronged them and did something to them. I want to encourage you not to make light of the pain and the trauma you've experienced at the hand of wicked people. God is not mocked. 
He's the one who is our covenant. We are in covenant with him, and, and, and he will make all wrongs right. But I want to encourage you. This points us to the reality that his plans will be fulfilled. If his plans can be fulfilled in the life of his son, his plans can be fulfilled as he promises us through his son. We can trust God. His plans will succeed. They will not be frustrated. Our days are numbered. Do you realize that? If the Lord does not come first, we will die. Do you realize we can trust God with our soul? He will be good to us. He will keep his promises to us. He will sustain us through difficulty. He will sustain us through great trial. The lamp would not go out. And don't you love this? When God made that promise back in 2 Kings 8 and back in 1 Kings, it wasn't contingent on mean old Athaliah. God's plans will be fulfilled. God works, God raises up people, God works in circumstances. He even works through the wicked actions of people to accomplish his purposes. Be encouraged by that. I really challenge you to do some soul searching on this one and to ask yourself, if I really believe this truth, how would it change my perspective right now in my life as it relates to trusting God? The second lesson God calls us to love him with our whole heart. Did you, did you notice that? I mean, you really, I mean, you've got three rulers here. You've got Jehu. You've got Athaliah and her vain attempt to establish power in 11, 1 through 3. And then you've got Jehoash. Look at really Jehu and Jehoash because Athaliah is wicked from the get-go. But Jehu and Jehoash, they give us an example of something here. What did Jehu do? You remember what we looked at last time? He killed a lot of people, but he was raised up by God as an avenger. He killed Joram. He killed Ahaziah. He killed Jezebel. He killed Ahab's descendants. He killed the prophets of Baal. And he did a lot. Uh, you know, we, we read in uh, 2 Kings 10 30, and the Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well and carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But then there's this sad reality in verse 31, but Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not Turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. We're going to see it next with the, the second king we're going to look at, but quick question. A question I challenge all of us to ask ourselves. Are we following God with our whole heart? Not compartments, but our whole heart. The, the next one, we see Athaliah. I mean, we could go on and on about her wickedness. She clearly didn't follow God with her whole heart. She didn't follow God in any external way. But then we see Joash. And remember that verse we looked at, I said I was coming back to? Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. 
And here's what's tragic. As long as Jehoiada was on the scene, you see positive out of Joash. But then we read something, and we've got to go to 2 Chronicles 24 to see it. And in 2 Chronicles 24, it's the companion guide to kings. And in this case, it's, it, it's just worth mentioning. You know, there's a reason why the Holy Spirit brings out what he brings out in 2 Kings, and not we're not going through 2 Chronicles, but look at this. This is a description of this man. Now, after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them. And notice what happens. Verse 18, And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for the guilt of theirs. And look at this, look at this. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. Surely they'll turn back. Surely this king that was instructed by Jehoiada will turn back. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Doesn't it frustrate you when people don't pay attention to you? Really, it's hard, isn't it? Um, and, and, and think about it, though. It's hard for us when people don't pay attention to us. Think about people not paying attention to God. What does he do? He, he, we see another individual. Now, here's what's crazy. Keep going. It says more. This is continuing about his story. Then the Spirit of God, this is 2 Chronicles verse 20 of chapter 24. He clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? <laughs> because you have forsaken the Lord. He's forsaken you. What do they do? But they conspired against him. And by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Imagine somebody in your life that influenced you greatly in the things of God. That person dies. Their son comes along, calls you back to the very truth that their dad taught you, and you don't want to hear it, and what, you, what do you do? You kill the son. Wow. Then Joash, sorry, you have to have better vision now. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zachariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Wow, all this is going on. Tragic turn. But then you've got this man. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because we've already seen it. Jehoiada was a breath of fresh air in the life of Israel. And while we, we, he's not a perfect man, he demonstrates a lot of the grace of God because what we see in his life is that he sought to follow the Lord. Remember the reforms he sought to make? And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people. So all of these examples, you've got, the, you got the two kings, you've got Athaliah, and you've got Jehoiada. And in all of it, what's the call? The call is that God 
desires our whole heart. God desires our whole heart. He calls us to love him with a whole heart. I was looking at the scripture and just looking at where the word heart is used, and and it was fascinating just to learn some things. Because I was thinking to myself, as we get close to landing the plane here, what does it look like to have a heart that, that is set apart to God? What does it look like to have a, a heart that is wholly following after God? Like, it, it, it's not compartmentalized. What does that look like? What does that call represent? It, it represents what we heard read earlier. Remember what David said? David said in 1 Kings 2, you can't read that, but he said this, Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Here's what some of the things I learned in looking this up. What does it mean? What are some descriptions of this type of heart? It's a rejoicing heart, Psalm 105. It's a steadfast heart, Psalm 108. It's a steady heart, Psalm 112. It's an inclined heart, meaning, God, help me to pay attention to you, Psalm 112. It's a heart that desires to be blameless, Psalm 119. It's a joyful heart, Psalm 119. It's an obedient heart, Psalm 119. It's a humble, worshipful heart. It's upright in heart. It's a heart that's sensitive to evil. It's a heart of wisdom. Proverbs says it's a holding fast heart. It's a vigilant heart. It's a binding heart. It's a receptive heart. It's a tranquil heart. It's a glad heart. It's a heart of knowledge. It's a cheerful heart. It's a righteous heart. It's a humble heart. It's a wise heart. It's a tested heart. It's an intelligent heart, a purposeful heart. Over and over and over, we see these depictions, a trusting heart. It's a heart that is yielded in humility to God with with palms open. I want to leave you with some truths to remember in regards to the heart, okay? Just some truths to remember in regards to the heart, and I pray they would encourage you as you consider this storyline this morning. Number one, only God can change the heart. I talked about that earlier. Only God can change the heart. Only God. And we need God to change our heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Only God can do it. Listen to this at the Jerusalem Council. Remember the Jews and the Gentiles and figuring it all out. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Look at the next one. And he made no distinction between us and them. And look at that last phrase. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Has your heart been cleansed? You can't follow the application of this passage apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. Do you see yourself a sinner? Have you casted yourself upon the goodness and the grace of Jesus? 
Whose work are you depending on? Are yourself, your own work? Are you dependent on the life of another, the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the only one that can change your heart. Second of all, we need to pray for the right heart response. Only God can change the heart. We need to pray for this type of heart. This morning, it starts with the heart of the psalmist in 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Thirdly, God calls us to worship him in our hearts. I've talked to this, about this passage before, but Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. They're Christians. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then he says something remarkable, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Can't get that last one. Listen to that last phrase. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that he may be at home in your hearts. Is Christ at home in your heart? Uh, most houses have a, uh, a junk drawer close to the uh, kitchen. Or they have a closet where a lot of things are stuffed into. Or maybe multiple closets. But imagine a heart that uh, has many rooms. Are those rooms accessible to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is, are, are you compartmentalizing your Christian life? Lord, I'll give you Sunday. I'll give you this. I'll give you this. I'll give you this. Don't touch that closet. There's things in there we're not going to deal with right now. Lord, I'm okay with this in my finances, but don't touch my finances. Don't touch my hobbies. Don't touch my entertainment. Don't touch my thoughts. You get the idea. But, but the point is this, is that a heart that wholly follows after God with a whole, wholeheartedness is the idea of a, of a heart that prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Point out to me where there are areas of my life that are not following you wholeheartedly. Fourthly, God's word reveals our hearts. This morning, if you want to grow in this, you, you recognize the source of how this can change is through Christ. You recognize that God calls you to worship him completely. Then you pray. You start praying. You say, God, would you, would you show me my heart? And what, this is so amazing. This is life-changing. It's life-changing. You begin to understand that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for reproof. God shows me my life. He shows me where I'm out of his will. It's profitable for correction. He straightens me where I'm crooked. It's profitable for training. It's profitable for instruction, reproof, for correction, 
for training. But God's word reveals our hearts. We come to the word of God. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And look at this. This is amazing. And discerning the thoughts and what? Intentions of the heart. You want your heart to be open before God. You pray and you say, Lord, I can only do this by the grace of your son through the power of the Holy Spirit but would you show me my heart? And then you get into a book that's not just the writings of a bunch of old dead men. You get into a book that's been given to us by the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit takes his living word and it begins to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. That's what it means to walk with God. Think about it. What does it mean to walk with God? Walking with God is this journey with the Lord whereby I walk submitting and surrendering to his lordship. So this morning, would you join with me in this pursuit, a pursuit that's only possible by his grace? But I pray we would learn from these kings, hearts that are not holy dedicated unto the Lord. Would you bow your head? Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the hope that we have. Lord, apart from your provision and your safeguarding of your plan in 2 Kings 11, 1 through 3, we have no hope for a heart that can look any different from that of the world. But we praise you for the hope of the new covenant. We praise you for the promise of your Holy Spirit. And I thank you, O oh God, that now we can know you in the power of your resurrection, that we can walk with you. We praise you, Father, that your Son is living, that you're a living God, Father, that we can walk with you, that Christ raised from the dead, Christ now empowers us by his grace. I pray you'd help all of us. I pray, Father, that if there are people here today that are confused about really the heart of what this message is all about, I pray that your spirit would reveal to them what it means to know you and walk with you and to have a heart that is wholehearted. I pray that we would grow in that. I pray that you would reveal this not just to the older people, but the youngest in the room. I pray, oh God, that we would be a church where people learn to walk with you and grow in you. And I pray that it would impact us in, in our real life, that it would impact students in a school system. It would impact employees and employers. I pray it would impact our influence around our neighbors. We thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.